Today's reading is the book of Jude, and it can be found on page 1,231. If you head to Revelations and just go back one page, you'll be there. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a silence for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault-finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. 
They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good, good morning. And uh, good morning and welcome to the book of Jude, a short but significant letter. So, here we go. What's that? Correct. You know it, don't you? Come on then. Da 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 da. When I was young, I, I knew this quite well, the, the opening lines of the symphony, but I didn't know the rest of it. It wasn't until much later I heard the whole thing. I, bought, I remember buying a cassette. Remember cassette tapes? And listened to it then. I had learned a bit more through Chuck Berry. Roll over Beethoven? Yeah, but it was, it was something I knew the first part of, but didn't know the rest. And then I heard it in all its context, and it's a, a marvelous um, piece of music. So much for Beethoven. When it comes to Jude, it's a similar but reverse thing. Look at the end of the letter, the doxology. I knew the doxology long before. Hopefully your Bibles are open or about to be opened. I knew the doxology more than I knew the rest of the book. I didn't really look at the book, but I knew the lovely doxology at the end, often given at the end of services, and I knew it quite well. It wasn't until much later I learnt... Have I got echo here? Or is it just me? Are we good? That's better. Excellent. I knew the doxology at the end, I knew Beethoven at the start, I knew the doxology at the end, and it wasn't until much later I saw the thing in its full context and what it has to say. So that's my experience of Beethoven and Jude. I don't know what your experience has been so far. Do you know we have an Emmanuel archivist? I consulted the archivist, and apparently Jude has been preached um, three times since the year 2000. Unsurprisingly, it was preached by... There goes my sheet, don't lose yours. You may want to follow on the back. Unsurprisingly, it was preached by a previous minister, Chris Green. Really good commentary on Jude. Can I thoroughly recommend it if you haven't got it? Or if it's on your bookshelf and you've never picked it off the bookshelf, I will encourage you to read it. It's really good. So, uh, Chris Green in 2000, um, Helen Thorne did a bite-sized Bible book 
on Jude in 2004. And you remember the famous Tom Halls? I can't do the Aussie accent that well, but he used to come here and preach every year. And he preached on Jude in 2019. So we have had this book preached before. And we're going to look at it again. Fourth time in 24 years this morning. So before we begin, let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our guide, and your glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we've got a short letter, but a lot to cover. So we're going to briefly look in a sermon series on a a book or letter. We often have a lot of introduction. I'm just going to make one introductory comment, and it's really good. Jude says he's a brother of James. James, who wrote the letter that we studied last year, and James is the brother of John. And this I find really good news because my vision or my image of Jesus' brothers and sisters was one where they had a massive falling out in Mark 3. But here, two of Jesus' half-brothers are in the church and they're leading the church in some ways. They're writing letters and they're The fallout has obviously not been permanent. They've come to follow their brother as the Lord and Saviour. So that's really really good. So that's my only introductory comment to the letter. So that's really quite important. And if you turn to the first section, we come to the key that will guide us through the letter this morning. And it's about contending. Let's just remind ourselves in chapter, there's no chapter there's only one chapter so it says here in verse 3 I felt compelled and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people Jude reminds me of a final year student, he's writing a dissertation, a big work and then he realises he's got an assignment due in tomorrow that he must hand in or he doesn't complete the course. Jude wanted to write at length, but he saw a need, an urgent need to write a short letter now. And this is the letter we have before us. And this is described as a letter to help them contend. Contend is a, an interesting word. It's um, in the Greek. It's, it means to strive to do strenuous effort. It's often used um, in military um, descriptions or athletic descriptions. And it also comes from the word agony in the ancient Greek or New Testament Greek. So he's saying you need to contend for God's word. And he says it's been given once for all. It's final and it's sufficient. It's everything you need and you need to strive to protect it and contend for it. It's the faith you've been given and you need to protect it. So why do they need to protect it? Why is it so urgent that he sends a letter? He stops his big work, his dissertation, and sends off this short essay to the church, or to churches. It probably was copied and sent around to other churches. Why is he so urgent in his call to contend? Well, within 30 years, and we think this letter is written about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, within 30 years, people are undermining the faith in the church, 30 years after um, that marvellous resurrection day. 
People have secretly slipped in amongst the churches. And the way he describes it, they've come in, they've slipped in, a bit like um, sheep in wolf's clothing. We know that, that familiar sort of idea. I'm actually more worried myself. Sheep, sorry, wolves in sheep's clothing are dangerous, but shepherds in sheep's clothing, that's hard to say on a Sunday morning, shepherds in sheep's clothing are even more dangerous. And he wants to, wants to warn us against those people and what they can do. And he gives an example of how they've come in and started to change things. And there's a heresy. I always, I always find this is antinomianism, and it comes from um, against law. It's a, it's, a, it's a misteaching of the word and of God's word. And he cites this as an example. We'll actually come across that in Romans. It's a, a theme in Romans as well. The idea that uh, you can do what you like once you're saved. And Chris Green says, liberty, we're free from sin when we become Christians, but it's not the same as doing anything you want to. It's not a license to behave as you want. It is, it is not that you can stop obeying God's moral law. Antinomus means against law. And these people were behaving. They said we're saved, therefore we don't need to follow the law at all. We can do what we want. And this is a distortion of the, the faith once given. And what it's saying is God is, is gracious, God is forgiving, but it's forgetting that God is holy and God is a God who asks and demands our obedience. So they emphasize the grace and forgiveness. They forget God's holiness and his call to us to be obedient and observe his moral law. So they... They take the word and they mess around with it. They move things around and they try to forget things. They also deny Christ. They reject Christ's uniqueness. They, they might say, he's a great teacher, but there are other great teachers. There are other voices we should listen to. Or they could acknowledge Christ is God's son. But uh, despite his uniqueness, I don't want to acknowledge the claims that has on my life. If Christ is Lord and, and sovereign, he must change me, he must rule my life. And they, people might well deny that and try and avoid obeying God's moral law. So, Judy is concerned about these things. So that's the first three, four verses. Time for a takeaway. So what is happening in the first century church has continued on to today. And this is where it feels a bit like this. There's an elephant in the room. Yeah? This is, this is contending is not comfortable to do. It means that we have to agonize and we have to be strenuous. And contending involves people within the church we need to deal with and it would be so tempting to avoid this and go straight into the body of the, the letter if you can see the body of the letter is full of Old Testament examples we could go and do an Old Testament sort of read through and avoid the, the implications application of what Jude is saying to the church 
So individuals slipped into the church in the first century, and they also slipped into the church 150 years ago in Northern Hemisphere, in Western Northern Hemisphere. And these people who slipped in have been doing things, the consequences of which we're living with and working out still today. Now, William Taylor, um, who is rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate, very wisely did Jude in four sermons. I'm trying to do it in one. And he did it in four. And in one of the sermons, when I was listening to them, he said, or he quoted from a theologian called um, Alan Stibbs. You may have heard of Alan Stibbs. And he quoted from one of his essays called The Bible as Revelation. And this is the quote he used. He said, for some, the Bible is absolutely unique and from above, God-given. While for others, it is only outstanding and from beneath, man-wrought, made by man. Now, this was a striking quote. This, this This made me sit up and pay attention. And I thought, I need to see this quote in context. So I looked at the, um, looked at the essay. And as I was reading it, it, um, it read, the first section of the essay read like reading um, book review or a blurb. You know the blurbs on the back of books? And he, what he did was, as this shows, he did contrasting points about these two views. He developed them, and it was quite long essays, but what he, I then thought, this sounds like a blurb, and I've read loads, loads of blurbs on books, non-fiction books in particular, and textbooks. And so he, um, he seems to be writing, although he didn't present it as a blurb, it could be put as a blurb with stuff on, you know, the, right on the back of the book. Now, <clears throat> to make it look like a blurb, I had to reduce this, and I don't know how good your eyesight is. Are you all going to Specsavers tomorrow? I'll read it out to you, but what he did in this work was he, he presented two sort of things and contrasted them, like the back of book blurbs. And I found it very, very helpful, very useful to understand where we are today and the issues that we're facing. And so what I'm going to do is I'll read it out to you. And uh, as I say, I'll read it across because I want to keep the contrast going. Rather than we normally read, obviously, a blurb on one book and read down, I'm just going to read across. So he's saying the way that uh, in the church we look at the Bible, we can look at it in two ways. So we can see it as a unique work or an outstanding work. We can see it as a God-given work or a man-wrought or made work. We can see it comes from above or it comes from below. Uh, Its words are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or it could be the product of a spiritual, spiritual discernment from a particular age. Its words will remain the appointed medium through which people of every age will hear the voice of God, or we will await fresh and fuller truths to be spiritually discerned by future generations. And then finally, it's the final standard against which all future claims to have found the truth must be judged, or it's the work, it's a work that will stimulate a great deal of spiritual discussion with possible revisions. Now, I found that very useful in trying to understand what's going on within the church in the Western world, Northern Hemisphere, today. Now, if, I, um, if I've oversimplified it, because I had to obviously cut down what he'd written, otherwise it wouldn't be a blurb, or if I've misrepresented anything in this, then please come and speak to me afterwards. I'm very happy to 
um, discuss it. So what Alan Stibbs is saying is about is basically talking about inspiration. Um, you all know, hopefully know 2 Timothy 3.16. In the King James Version, it says all scripture is inspired. Inspired by God. What, is, what your NIV says is God breathed. It's interesting. It's, the argument appears to be about inspiration. Is it, is it God breathed or is it uh, man sort of developed? Inspiration is a blending of human and divine. God has inspired people to write, but how much is them, how much is him? It's always been discussed by, by people. And the NIV very correctly says God breathed. I think it's a better translation of the Greek, and it's, it's quite an interesting idea. I was thinking about Beethoven, as we were a few months ago, and I felt... And some theologians um, think this as well. If you use the word inspired today, it's quite a weak term. It's like you could say Beethoven was inspired by the countryside or by God a little bit and then wrote it all himself on that inspiration. This is not what scripture is. It's not somebody has an idea and then runs with it on their own. It is God breathed. It's from God. This is what Jude is saying. It's what he wants us to know. So all... Scripture is God breathed. Now, we come to the central letter. We're not going to spend too long on this because uh, it's homework. Sorry, it's homework, people. You're going to do some homework. Jude says in this section, uh, I always say chapter. I don't know why I say chapter when it's one, one chapter. In chapter... One, which is the whole of Jude, he says in verse 5, you already know this, but I want to remind you. It's a bit like revision. Okay, he's saying, you know this already. It's revision. And we talked about bite size. Do you remember, anybody remember bite size revision? Yeah, okay. This is, he gives us an incredible amount of bite sized things in this revision pack. And he says, you know this, I'm going to remind you of it. Now, as a ex-teacher, when I came to revision every year, the one thing I didn't want to find students saying to me as we went through the course is, we didn't know that, we don't know that. That really was quite worrying. And if you look down this section, there's several things you may not recognize, and your Bible very, very helpfully has actually told you what these are. If you look at the footnotes, it talks about these references being two, if you look on the right-hand side, it's the Testament of Moses and the Book of Enoch. Anybody familiar with those? If, you're, if you are, I'd like you to come and tell me about them because they're quite uh, interesting works. They're, they are apocryphal works that Jude has included because his, his audiences will have been familiar with these books. They are not scripture they're well-known books that he thinks, if I refer to them, it will help me with my message. The, um, the one about the Archangel Michael, which is the reference on verse 9, is to do with a story about disputing, there we are, disputing over Moses' death after. Afterwards, it's, there's a story about um, the devil and the Archangel Michael disputing over it. You don't need to probably know the, the details, but the message is that 
the Archangel Michael accepted the authority of God. He didn't uh, pronounce judgment on Satan because that wasn't his role. He knew where his role lay and it wasn't to do that. So it's about obedience and authority and respecting authority. The, the book of Enoch is uh, a book about talking about the forthcoming judgment of those who are disobedient to God. And the other thing that you may find a bit confusing is in verse... Um, where's it gone? In verse 6, the angels who do not keep their positions of authority but abandon their proper dwelling. This is often seen as talking about Genesis 6 when sons of God came down to dwell with men. And so that's a slightly um, complicated thing, but Jude expects people to know this. Now, we unfortunately don't have time to look through the Old Testament uh, references, but they're there for you to, to follow. And so I leave those to you. So... Let's look very briefly at this section after you've gone through your... You've got three Old Testament examples to look at, one apocryphal example, three more Old Testament examples, and one more apocryphal example as homework. And then in this section, around those Old Testament and apocryphal examples, he weaves a description of the people you need to be aware of and need to look at. And I just want to look very briefly at verses 12 to 13 with you. What do these people like? He says in the section 12, these people are blemishes at the love feast. Another word, or a better translation possibly, is they are like reefs, underwater rocks that people and boats get snagged on. They, they attend a love feast, often which would accompany communion, and they snag people. They're like shepherds who look after themselves. Beware of shepherds, sorry, wolves in shepherds' clothing. They're like clouds that promise rain but give none. They're like trees that give no fruit and, in fact, are dead. They are um, waves that throw up loads of rubbish. You know how if you walk along the beach, the waves throw up loads of rubbish from the sea. And they're like wandering stars. They're people that if you try and follow them, you can't navigate by them because they keep moving. They don't stay in one place. They're, they're moving and jumping around. And so Jude wants the church to know what to look out for when they contend for the faith. And this is quite important. So what do we get here? What's our takeaway? Well, I think um, I'd say know your scripture and apply your scripture. And there's a note to preachers as well. Use, Judas is preaching or teaching using images that his audience understand and can access. And it's often a challenge as a preacher to have images that people can follow, that they understand, that help, their, help them in their work. And what else does um, Jude want us to know at this point? It's probably not to panic. What has happened in the Old Testament, New Testament is happening now. Don't panic. So I sound like Corporal Jones, don't I, from Dad's Army? That's right. Yeah, don't panic. God has been in control in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. He's in control now. But we can't sit back. We can't just relax. We need to do something. So, how are they going to strive? How are they going to agonize? How are they going to be strenuous? is the section at the end of Jude's letter. And this is now application. If you look at Jude, he spent a lot of time talking about why we're contending and how to spot these people. And now he tells you how to do it. And it, he gives it in very clear 
points. It's a very highly applied part of the letter. He gives them four types of building work to do and three types of rescue work or rescue missions to do, and we are to do the same. This, is, this applies to us. This is for us as much as for them. It's not just for the leaders to do this. It's for us to do as members of the church. It wasn't for yesterday. It is for today and beyond. So we should contend... And we should do it by building ourselves up. We talk about building us, ourselves up. We should become mature in the faith. We can't wait until we're totally mature to deal with these people and contend with these people. We must do it today. And we must seek to be mature in the faith. We must study and meditate on God's word to build us up. He says we must pray. This is not our work on our own. We depend on God and we should be praying in the spirit to him to do our contending. We should also remember love. One of the best churches in the New Testament for contending, apparently, was the Ephesian church. They were really hot on contending for the faith. And this is noted in the second chapter of Revelation, just across the way from Jude. But they are told, you've done really well, you've fought against um, false teaching, you've contended well, you've strived, but you've forgotten love. Remember love. That's so important. And then finally, Jude says, wait for the eternal. Take the eternal perspective on this. Remember who's in control. Look forward to God's sort of finishing things and God's protection. Take God's eternal perspective on this, not just today's. So this is, this is quite important to us as Christians. We must do this. We must continue in this. We don't wait till we're perfect to start contending. We contend now, but we do this as we contend for the faith once given. And then finally, three types of rescue work. In the final section before the doxology, Jude says there are three types of people you can start to rescue. Doubters, I call them doubters, dabblers, and deep divers. The doubters are like people who've looked at uh, the, the ideas in verse 4, the antimonialism, and they've said, oh, I'm not sure, I'm doubting now what I've been taught. Jude says you need to deal with these people, go alongside them, talk through their doubts, don't dismiss them, listen to them, and help them. So people are doubting what they've been taught, help them. Don't say you can't have doubts. Seek to address those doubts. And then he says there are people as if they go into fire, they start to dabble, they've taken the ideas of verse 4 and they've actually started to put them into practice. You've got to rescue them from the fire, you've got to, inter- you've got to intervene, you've got to say something, and you've got to help them to turn around and come out of the fire and not to follow these false teachings, these distortions of the truth. And then finally... This, the Greek here is quite complicated, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but uh, he seems to be talking about people who've really become involved in this false teaching, this um, mistaking of God's word or distorting of God's word. And he uses very strong language for this. He talks about them um, in ways that are quite uh, hard to understand, but nevertheless, in verse 20, 23, he talks about hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. He seems to be talking about people who've really become involved in this antimonialism, this sort of um, liberty idea. And again, you can still approach them, but he also says, be careful. 
Do it cautiously. Make sure you're mature in the faith. Remember, these people have probably persuaded others to join them. Be careful how you handle them. Don't just assume things. Be careful, but seek to bring them back. And so that's where Jude is. You, you build yourselves up, and then you deal with the people who are causing problems. But you do it carefully and prayerfully. And then we're back at the beginning. We're back at that doxology that we uh, hopefully know already. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and able to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord and before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is an amazing piece of comfort. I can see why it's often been used at the end of services when people finish their services on a Sunday and they've got to go out into the working week. This is an amazing piece of um, scripture to help us meet the challenges of the week. And it's also there for us as we meet the challenges of contending for the gospel day in and day out as Christians as we grow, as we seek to address doubters, as we somehow try to deal with dabblers and those who've done deep dives into false teaching. It's an amazingly practical um, section and it puts the doxology, I hope, in context. Can I commend the short but significant letter of Jude to your further study? It has so many more things to say, but I think that's probably enough for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your servant Jude. We thank you for all that he felt he needed to do, that you prompted him to write these words to the churches. We pray that the church continues to face problems of um, dealing with division, and we do pray that you would help us to contend for the faith once given for all time, and that we would do it in a way that honours you and builds up your body. In Jesus' name, amen.